welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Yay! Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for yourselves and everyone else all over the world. And regardless of the negative conditions all around, or those groups or individuals trying to rule over or impose their unjust concepts upon everyone else, let us all hold steadfast to our own mighty I Am Presence, knowing that it is the power and the spirit of the living God that dwells within everyone and will never fail us. And in keeping the faith and believing in that power and spirit, Continue to push on a little further in love, no matter the obstacles that may confront us. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life, and y'all be loved. Jesus told them another parable, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Don't you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, Let them hear. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, 
how much less will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. And, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels, without knowing it. Matthew 13 24-30, Matthew 13 36-43, Hebrews 12 18-29, Hebrews 13 1-2. Volume 2, Chapter 1 Some years ago, certain travelers saw in Bari, Italy, a statue of the Madonna, arrayed in a flounced pink skirt over a swelling crinoline. Pious pilgrims who may be anxious to examine the regulation wardrobe of their god's mother, may do so by going to southern Italy, Spain, and Catholic North and South America. The Madonna of Berry must still be there, between two vineyards and a Locanda gin shop. When last seen, a half-successful attempt had been made to clothe the infant Jesus, they had covered his legs with a pair of dirty, scallop-edged pantaloons. An English traveler having presented the mediatrix with a green silk parasol, the grateful population of the Contadini, accompanied by the village priest, went in procession to the spot. They managed to stick the sunshade, opened, between the infant's back and the arm of the virgin which embraced him. The scene and ceremony were both solemn and highly refreshing to our religious feelings. For there stood the image of the goddess in its niche, surrounded with a row of ever-burning lamps, the flames of which, flickering in the breeze, infect God's pure air with an offensive smell of olive oil. The mother and son truly represent the two most conspicuous idols of monotheistic Christianity, for a companion to the idol of the poor Contadini of Bari, go to the rich city of Rio Janeiro. In the church of the Duomo del Candelaria, in a long hall running along one side of the church, there might be seen, a few years ago, another Madonna. Along the walls of the hall there is a line of saints, each standing on a contribution box, which thus forms a fit pedestal. In the center of this line, under a gorgeously rich canopy of blue silk, is exhibited the Virgin Mary leaning on the arm of Christ. Our Lady is arrayed in a very décolleté blue satin dress with short sleeves, showing, to great advantage, a snow-white, exquisitely molded neck, shoulders, and arms. The skirt equally of blue satin with an overskirt of rich lace and gauze puffs, is as short as that of a ballet dancer, hardly reaching the knee. It exhibits a pair of finely shaped legs covered with flesh-colored silk tights, and blue satin French boots, with very high red heels. The blonde hair of this Mother of God is arranged in the latest fashion, with a voluminous chignon and curls. As she leans on her son's arm, her face is lovingly turned toward her only begotten, whose dress and attitude are equally worthy of admiration. Christ wears an evening dress coat, with swallowtail, black trousers, and low-cut white vest, varnished boots, and white kid gloves, over one of which sparkles a rich diamond ring, worth many thousands, we must suppose, a precious Brazilian jewel. Above this body of modern Portuguese dandy, is a head with a hair parted in the middle, a sad and solemn face and eyes whose patient look seems to reflect all the bitterness of this last insult, 
flung at the majesty of the crucified. H.P. Blavatsky The Egyptian Isis was also represented as a virgin mother by her devotees, and as holding her infant son, Horus, in her arms. In some statues and basso relievos, when she appears alone, she is either completely nude or veiled from head to foot. But in the mysteries, in common with nearly every other goddess, she is entirely veiled from head to foot, as a symbol of a mother's chastity. It would not do us any harm were we to borrow from the ancients some of the poetic sentiment in their religions, and the innate veneration they entertain for their symbols. It is but fair to say at once that the last of the true Christians died with the last of the direct apostles. Max Muller forcibly asks, how can a missionary in such circumstances meet the surprise and questions of his pupils, unless he may point to that seed, and tell them what Christianity was meant to be, unless he may show that, like all other religions, Christianity too, has had its history, that the Christianity of the 19th century is not the Christianity of the Middle Ages, and that the Christianity of the Middle Ages was not that of the early councils, that the Christianity of the early councils was not that of the apostles, and that what has been said by Christ, that alone was well said. Thus, we may infer that the only characteristic difference between modern Christianity and the old heathen faiths, is the belief of the former in a personal devil and in hell. The Aryan nations had no devil, says Max Muller. Pluto, though of a somber character, was a very respectable personage, and Loki, the Scandinavian, though a mischievous person, was not a fiend. The German goddess, Hell, too, like Proserpine, had once seen better days. Thus, when the Germans were indoctrinated with the idea of a real devil, the Semitic Seth, Satan or Diabolus, they treated him in the most good-humored way. The same may be said of Hell. Hades was quite a different place from our region of eternal damnation, and might be termed rather an intermediate state of purification. Neither does the Scandinavian hell of Hela, imply either a state or a place of punishment, for when Frigga, the grief-stricken mother of Baldur, the white god, who died and found himself in the dark abodes of the shadows, Hades, sent Hermit, a son of Thor, in quest of her beloved child, the messenger found him in the inexorable region, alas, but still comfortably seated on a rock and reading a book. The Norse kingdom of the dead is moreover situated in the higher latitudes of the polar regions, it is a cold and cheerless abode, and neither the gelid halls of Hela, nor the occupation of Baldur present the least similitude to the blazing hell of eternal fire, and the miserable damned sinners with which the church so generously people it. No more is it the Egyptian Amenthus, the region of judgment and purification, nor the Andhra, the abyss of darkness of the Hindus, for even the fallen angels hurled into it by Shiva, are allowed by Parabrahma to consider it as an intermediate state, in which an opportunity is afforded them to prepare for higher degrees of purification and redemption from their wretched condition. The Gehenna of the New Testament was a locality outside the walls of Jerusalem, and in mentioning it, Jesus used but an ordinary metaphor. Whence came the dreary dogma of hell, the Archimedean lever of Christian theology, with which they have succeeded to hold in subjection the numberless millions of Christians for 19 centuries. Assuredly not from the Jewish scriptures, and we appeal for corroboration to any well-informed Hebrew scholar. H.P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 15 
When you ask for the light of the angelic host to fill you in your world, then the love from the angelic host through the sacred fire flows within that light and is held about you as a garment of protection, a wall of invincible protection, and the power of victorious accomplishment. So, during the rest of this conclave, will you, sometime each day, give recognition to the light and the sacred fire which the angelic host are privileged to concentrate and give to mankind, for the assistance which the angelic host alone convey. It is their service to life at this time. They are the custodians of its power. If you ask for the light and the sacred fire of the love from the ascended host to blaze a sun of their presence around you, you will find their presence there, very real, very tangible, their gifts and their control flooding your world with the perfection which they can bestow. Blessed ones, in entering in now to the use of the sun presence of the sacred fire and cosmic light of the angelic host, try to feel its intense radiation in and around you. And if you become quiet enough, there comes a thrill in the stillness of that sacred fire that is as real as reality can ever be, and will only leave in you and your world, the blessings of the love of the angelic host. Tonight, may their sun presence of their heart's flames love enfold each of you, your beings and worlds, your loved ones, all you hold near and dear in this world, or even in the octave of light, until the blazing power of the angelic host's invincible victory in this world becomes your world in which you live, until the moment of your ascension. This also will assist you in the hour of your ascension because of its raising power of the sacred fire within the love of the angelic host, as they offer to you their gifts of the cosmic Christ. Beloved Godfrey I enfold you tonight in such love from the angelic host, in such a world of their perfection, that it becomes an eternal part of your life streams, if you recognize it every day and dwell within it by conscious command until these beings reveal themselves to you face to face in blazing light, their own bodies a brighter light, until one day you will touch them, and their tangible bodies are as visible and tangible and solid as yours. You may touch the angelic host. And when they touch you, healing is complete on the instant, for the angels of the healing flame bring the world of their purity and love in the sacred fire's power in which naught else can exist. And they are ever ready to assist in the healing of the individuals or the nations or the world. So, as you dwell within their world of the sacred fire, and you feel their tangible presence with you, it will not be long until they can reveal themselves within the light of the cosmic Christ, and you will know the cosmic Christ has come to earth to dwell with those who are to be carried forward to their ascension. May you feel the enfolding world of the sacred fire of the angelic host and its cosmic Christ victory lift you to freedom wherever you abide. May the fullness of its boundless supply ever bless you with eternal perfection. Thank you with all my heart. Beloved Godfrey. <music>